Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Brandon Magner, a 2018 graduate of the University of Kentucky College of Law, who was practicing union-side labor law at Gath Law Office in Indianapolis, Indiana, where he represents workers in the building and construction trades, as well as other industries. We will discuss his article, Grand Theft Auto, Calibrating Laboratory Conditions to the New Normal in Union Elections, which will be published in the Concordia Law Review. So welcome to the show, Brandon. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and congratulations on on getting this article written and out the door and in the publication queue. That's that's really so great for to see a, a recent graduate of the law school uh, engaging in legal scholarship like you are. Yeah, I just um, you know I, I went ahead and I wrote this during my three L year for an independent research course, and uh, after graduating, I just had it laying around, and you know the, the issues within the article was still buzzing around in my head all the time. And I just thought, you know, why, why just not try and dust this off and uh, send it off to law review and see what they think. And so it's great. It's great. And it's super timely too, as we'll get into later in the conversation. Right. Which made, uh, it was timely when I wrote it. And then it's timely again for reasons we'll talk about. Um, Not all good, but still very important, I think, for labor law reform going forward. Cool. So as as we were discussing earlier, maybe you could start by sort of talking more generally about like what labor unions are, how they work in today's kind of industrial labor market, and you know, how a union kind of comes into being in a particular workplace. Right. So a labor union is uh basically a group of workers within Specifically within the American top context, a union operates solely within one workplace, so one company uh, at the enterprise level, as opposed to in Europe, you'll often see uh, unions cover an entire industry or sector. Um, but work, so it's a group of workers that will bargain with the employer for better wages, uh, hours, conditions of employment, benefits, and all sorts of things, Any, everything rising from uh retirement packages to something as small as uh, whether you want uh, an ice cream machine or something in the, in the break room. Uh, that is something that the employer may have to bargain for depending on uh, the context of the context of the individual workplace. And um, unions today are uh, not nearly as prevalent in the American work uh, workforce as they were uh, even 30 years ago. Um, at their peak, they represented about 35% of the workforce in the 1950s. And today, the private sector uh, union unionization rate is down to a little around 7%. So, so they're not nearly as uh, – the, the union uh, bargaining prevalence within the, within the American economy is not nearly what it was. So it's easy for us, I think, to uh, – kind of forget about what they do. And it, it's true. A, a lot of people my age certainly don't even, I think, know what unions are or what they do. Mm-hmm. So in a, in a sense, it's almost like a union is kind of like a company within a company that represents the workers collectively then? I haven't thought of it that way, but uh, it, it I, I can, yeah, I, I think that's one way to describe it is um, it's, it's another, it's without a union, you operate under at-will employment in America. 
as the default presumption of employment. And it's just you individually technically bargaining with the employer for uh, working conditions. But usually, as, as we know, that is technically or in effect, whatever the employer offers you is what you get. And the only way to really change that default rule is to organize yourself and organize you and your coworkers into a union, because then the employer under the law uh, has an obligation to bargain with you and the group of your workers for a contract, a collective bargaining agreement. Mm-hmm. So are there like both practical and legal benefits then? I mean, it sounds like there's laws sort of regulating how employers have to negotiate with unions. Are there also like practical negotiating benefits? I mean, like, for example, can a union have more leverage than workers would have on their own? Uh, that is something that's sort of a disagreement, I guess, depending on your ideology, depending on your view of the economy and stuff. I, my opinion, at least, is that there's no doubt that workers have more bargaining leverage together than they do individually, just through the simple uh, sheer numbers. Is that if you say to your employer, if you have you have 50 coworkers and you individually say to your employer, I refuse to work for the conditions that you have offered, he will say, okay, get lost. I will hire somebody else to do it. Unless you're unless you're a very high skilled laborer, you offer some unique set of skills. But with you and your coworkers, if all fifty of you in the workplace say we want better wages or we will go on strike, then suddenly the the employer is looking at not having any employees showing up to work the next day. So I mean, that's just to me, it's kind of fundamental in just the idea of uh, collective action, um, collective empowerment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so how does this work then? Like, how does a union actually come into existence? And in particular, uh, what does a group of workers have to do in order to qualify for treatment as a union under the law? This is something uh, the, the the legality of union formation was first, uh, I guess, given federal sanction in 1935 when. Uh, Congress passed the National Labor Relations Act. And part of that was it established the National Labor Relations Board, which oversaw the election and certification of unions. Um, Before that, it was purely a voluntary basis of whether the employer would recognize the union or not. So basically, you had uh, a dichotomy where super high skilled workers who had a lot of individual bargaining leverage and together, when they had a lot of bargaining leverage, uh, they were able to force the employer basically to recognize them as a union, but more less skilled workers, people say who worked assembly lines, who had what was seen as replaceable skills, uh, they rarely ever had unions. So the the National Labor Relations Act is what changed that and allowed um, workers to petition themselves to the NLRB to certify as a union. And so what that requires is you need to have 30% 30% of the workers in the workforce need to uh, petition to the National Labor Relations Board to say, uh, we would like a union election. And in, in effectively, a union will only do that if they believe they have a majority support of the workforce, because the union can only be certified through the NLRB if they win 50% plus one of all voters participating in the election. So once if you get that 50% plus one status, then the, the NLRB will certify you as the union. And then the employer becomes uh, obligated under the law to bargain with you over wages, hours, and working conditions. So what's the constituency? Like who are the people who are 
counted as potential union members for the purpose of an election of this kind? And are there some people who might work for a business who would not be included? Sure. So uh, I guess uh, literally is anybody who the, who the union places forward is the constituency. But like you, like you alluded to, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of uh, subtleties to it that I guess can carve up the bargaining unit into a smaller unit, but uh, management cannot be part of the bargaining unit. Um, independent contractors cannot be part of the bargaining unit. Um, professional employees in some contexts cannot. Um, so there's a, there's a famous Supreme court ruling that says that actually professors at universities cannot be uh, part of a bargaining unit, but there, so that's what creates the, the split between uh, professors and teaching assistants judgments that are made determining of who uh who can be part of unionization who cannot um which also um so supervisory employees also cannot be part of Mm. so like uh foreman at the assembly plant cannot be uh they're considered kind of the uh the helpers of management so even though they kind of are on the shop floor uh not in an office or anything uh, they will not be uh, included in any bargaining unit. Okay. So how is a union election supposed to work? Like kind of in the kind of theoretical world, what's supposed to happen? What's it supposed to look like? And like, to what extent does the NLRB or any other kind of government actor have a role in regulating how a union election proceeds? So the NLRB, um, it in the, in a perfect setting, the union is supposed to petition for an election, and then both parties, the company and the union, will then make their their pitches basically to the workers over this over the course of a few weeks, um, arguing for and against unionization, its pros and ben- its pros and cons, and uh, then the employee is supposed to make an informed choice based upon those pitches. Um, the NLRB sees this as it's and it's sort of a criticism often emerging in labor law is that it, the uh, NLRB sort of vacillates between treating it as a, as an analogy to a political election um, where the workers are the voters, the company and the union are the, uh, the politicians of the political parties and they're making their campaign speeches. Um, and then on the flip side, sometimes, uh, what they'll treat it as or what, what, what doctrine they view it under is called the laboratory conditions. And that is sort of the assumption that the union election is a closed experiment that needs to be closely monitored so that we can get the right measurement of employee sentiment. Um, and so anything that disturbs that measurement, whether it's, uh, uh, fraudulent information given by the company or union that misleads the employees or coercive tactics used by either side, um, then that becomes something that has disturbed the laboratory conditions enough that we didn't get an accurate reading. Uh, the file, mm. whether that was for, whether they voted for or against unionization. Um, and that may require then under laboratory conditions, a rerun of the election. Okay. Okay. Well, let's 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 return to that in one second. But I wanted to kind of take a big picture look at sort of the unionization process in the United States right now. So you suggested or you observed earlier 
that the prevalence of unionization in the private workforce has been, you know, kind of steadily declining uh, over the last couple uh, of decades. Why is that, right? I mean, are there structural or legal barriers to unionization, uh, incentives that might be preventing employees from unionizing? Is it a geographical phenomenon? In other words, is the decline happening more in some places than in others? And and if so, why? Uh, it's definitely a mixture of a whole ton of factors, uh, political, social, economic. Um, but it's it's been a very, as you alluded to, it's been a very linear decline in unionization since basically the middle of the 20th century. And um, I'd say the biggest economic factor for that is obviously globalization, just in the fact that uh, factories or large employers are much more easily, it's much more easier now for them to move their production overseas, to move it within the United States to a different state uh, based on their own interests. And um, so that freed up a lot of former bargaining leverage uh, that unions used to have where they could kind of, they, if they had enough collective strength, they could kind of exert their will over one employer um, in, at one, one workplace. And now it is much easier for the employer to say, well, I don't like how the union is driving my rates up, driving my wages up. Um, I have very expensive benefit packages now I have to pay out. So what I can do is I can move my, uh, my plant to say the South, where there is a much lower unionization rate, much less competition um, politically, um, it, the the uh, environment there is much more against unions, just historically, um, ideologically. Um, so they'll have much less support there, um, both in the workplace, both among the workers themselves and in the local governments. Um, so it's, it's just kind of created this, uh, this atmosphere where even if a union, even if unions are successful in one region, if they become, you know, say too successful, too successful, say they drive up the wages like they did at, um, what is traditionally called the big three, uh, Chrysler, Ford, General Motors up in in, uh, Detroit, Michigan, is that the workers there had very high benefit packages very high wages. And uh, over time, they were seen as being less competitive with the increasing foreign competition that moved into the United States from Japan and other states and other countries um, that then made uh, those companies, or at least they were perceived to be uh, less able to compete with the the lower labor costs that those that the foreign uh, companies were able to operate under so it creates this race to the bottom scenario where companies can move their uh, operations south to say a state like south carolina that has only two percent of its workforce is unionized versus somewhere like california new york where it's upwards of 20 percent where because workers are not able to prevent the companies from doing that, they're honestly uh, bargaining against themselves to a point if they are driving up their own wages too much, or at least that's the economic argument. Mm-hmm. And you've noted um, something called right to work laws as well. Can you talk about what those are 
and sort of where they're most prevalent and whether you think that they might have an effect on the ability of workers in particular uh, industrial settings to unionize. Sure. And uh, I'll preface it by saying that the name itself is misleading. There is no right to work really underwear anywhere in the United States. So you don't have a right to a job. You don't have uh, a state passing a right to work law. Does that mean you can go walk into your, any employee? <laughs> I have a right to work here. Um, the, the, the name itself comes from the argument that, or the reality that uh, in a non-right to work state, a, uh, a union can, as a, in the workplace, a union can compel what are called agency fees or uh, what they like to call fair share fees from everyone who operates under, under the uh, under the collective bargaining agreement within the bargaining unit, and the and the the logic for that is that even if say you aren't a member of the union, we don't have compulsory union membership in the United States. Uh, it's 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 on a voluntary basis. But in a non right to work state, even if you elect not to be a member of the union, you will still have to pay from your paycheck uh, somewhere between one to two percent of it to the union because the union is the one who uh, is administering the collective bargaining agreement is, is the reason why uh, you have higher wages, uh, uh, just cause job security instead of at will employment. Um, they will represent you in our in grievance uh, settings for arbitration. Even if you're not a member, the union has to do that under its duty of fair representation. Um, and so it creates this kind of, it, it prevents a, a uh, free rider scenario you know, common under economic theory of where if somebody doesn't have to pay for what is essentially a public good, they will not do it. And that mm. is higher costs on the union because they will then be representing more and more people who rationally choose not to, not to uh, pay that, that fair share fee. And so what the what right to work laws do is they eliminate that level of compulsion where uh, you do not have to pay the union anything, but the union remains obligated under the NLRA to, under its duty of fair representation, to represent you. So, so somebody who's not a member of the union can file a grievance against their employer, and the union will then have to go pay somebody like me uh, attorney's fees to represent them in an arbitration setting. And so the union argument is that that is unfair. But what the right to work law do, so what the right to work law does is it, it, it eliminates that level of compulsion and it creates this sort of level of animosity inherently in the workplace where people who do pay the union fees then feel like the free riders aren't paying anything by getting the same product. And, um, but really just being honest though, that, that, that itself alone is kind of a specific legal tweak that doesn't necessarily destroy a union overnight. It's the right to work law is more of just about is, is more of a signal, I think, to employers that we uh, we have the political support for you against labor in our state. Now, come move here. Come bring your plant here. We will pass more laws that benefit you. Um, so it, and research shows that employers are much more likely to move there facilities to a state that has a uh, right to work law than one that does not. So a, a big part of your paper, Brandon, is is looking at some recent uh, 
attempts to unionize at auto plants in the South, almost like case studies of what a union election drive look like looks like today. And I wonder if you could talk in in more detail about sort of what happened in those union elections and how they relate to the sort of theoretical goals of how a union election is supposed to be run. Yeah. And so this kind of, these elections actually touched on this race to the bottom principle that we were just talking about. And they really, uh, really symbolize that. Um, the first one being the 2014 United Auto Workers drive at uh, Volkswagen in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And this one was uncommon in the sense that the company itself did not campaign against the union because Volkswagen uh, has a very strong international union presence that I think influenced uh, management's decision not to pursue, as it is legally obligated to do under labor law, uh, to campaign against the union and try and persuade workers not to vote for the union. Um, but what filled the void, really, of the, the usual company campaign against the union was a, was a very strong uh, combined uh, overwhelming uh, campaign against the union by local business interests, uh, local po- political establishment, and, and the p- local political establishment. So, what emerged was uh, the the governor's office there, um, the Republican-controlled legislature, and uh, former senator uh, and former mayor of Chattanooga, Bob Corker. Uh, they all campaigned and collaborated to. Uh, really send signals to the workforce that a union was not wanted there. And it became very publicized. And the, what eventually became revealed was that the, uh, the speaker of the house in Tennessee um, actually made communications to the, uh, the manager of the Volkswagen plant that they would withdraw the $300 million in tax subsidies that they had originally appropriated for Volkswagen for, an, for a plant expansion, if they uh, voluntarily recognize the union as they originally planned to do, so that's so that's what created the need for an NLRB election was the fact that the company uh, did not recognize the union. So, what uh, for the union to gain certification, they had to go through the usual uh, NLRB machinery. And on the eve of that election, um, Senator Corker actually said um, that. He had it on good authority, and he had sources within the plant that said if the workers voted against the UAW, uh, the the, uh, Volkswagen was going to announce a a new uh, plant expansion. They were going to bring in a new line of automobiles that would uh, hire a thousand more workers. And so that kind of caught the workplace by storm. And what ended up was they ended up losing that election by about 70 votes. And in a plant of uh, around 3,000 employees, that was a very small margin. And so what um, that eventually led Mm. the union to try and do this legal argument that under laboratory conditions, uh, the laboratory conditions doctrine that we were talking about, where the NRB sort of acts as the uh, overseer of an experiment where Parties cannot try and taint the results through misleading information. Um, that th- that this kind of combined efforts by the, the the politicians in the state and the local business interests 
did not that that affected employees freedom of choice enough that they should rerun an election. And they eventually mm. abandoned that argument two months later for an, for a reason, uh, uh, another tweak under labor law that says that if you lose an election, you then uh, have to wait 12 months to try and petition for another one, unless the, unless the NLRB itself orders a rerun. So in, so the, there was, uh, the UAW didn't want to try and if, because they had such a close result, there was a lot of incentive for them to try and not push this off for years with court proceedings through the NLRB and then through uh, the court of appeals, trying to win on this kind of really small legal argument when they believed that they could just try and win uh, on their own merits a year later. Um, and ended up that Volkswagen, um, ended up recognizing the union on a members only basis, which is not a full certification under law, um, because the union has to normally represent members and non-members. So there was this kind of truce for a little bit at Volkswagen before the, before, uh, the UAW was able to organize um, under normal procedures, a much smaller unit within the whole uh, workplace, within the whole uh, workforce, a small amount of mechanics, and that kind of signals and that kind of set off the Volkswagen management that that the UAW was withholding their end of the treaty, and so they fought that very vociferously because they wanted the uh, the UAW to either organize the whole plan itself or have nothing. Um, the UAW this year, um, event, uh, a few months ago, they uh, they swore off that, that smaller unit and said, okay, we're ready to have a full election again. And uh, this one, and so this this time the election was far different in that the, uh, the company campaigned against the union uh, itself. But it also drew upon the same political establishment support that it had uh, previously in that uh, Volkswagen actually brought in the governor of Tennessee to speak at a captive audience meeting um, of workers, where it made a it sent a very clear signal that we uh, that we have the support of the governor who has control over you know, the political establishment in Tennessee, which can basically determine what kind of tax subsidies we get. They can they they hold the purse over whether our plant can expand or constrict and. That's the sort of thing that the NLRB would typically be looking under laboratory conditions for things that upset the balance of what messages the employees are supposed to be hearing. Um, and mm. a few years ago, UAW also tried to organize the Nissan plant in Canton, Mississippi, which was a similar setting in that you know a, a state that doesn't have a very large union presence. Um, where it's important for the UAW to try and organize that to protect, to, to try and protect its wage gains in other states, and uh, that the Nissan campaign also saw a very strong uh, company campaign against the union. Um, they had the support of the governor. They had the support of uh, a lot of DC five hundred one c threes that kind of, that actually bombarded uh, employees with. Uh, mail, mailers, uh, commercials, radio spots, things that kind of created this just cacophony of, uh, of, of, of messages and arguments against the union that otherwise would normally not be there. And so 
Um, so it creates this kind of, it creates this difficulty under labor law where the employee is supposed to be hearing um, what is imagined to be sort of reasoned arguments from both sides. But what the employee is hearing is, okay, the, the, my employer who controls my paycheck, my schedule, um, how much I make, how much I work on any given week, they're telling me to vote against the union. Then also the politicians in my state, which obviously hold a lot of power, they're telling me to vote against the union. So what is really convincing me at this point to upset the status quo here, to bring in a union? I mean, that that seems that becomes a huge risk for the employer. I mean, just just being honest. I mean, that that becomes something where it takes it would then take a a a, a huge effort to, or a huge upset victory by the union to try and organize a union in a place that does not traditionally have unions, that does not have support, the infrastructural support. Or anything similar. Yeah, I mean, I can see how that would be incredibly frustrating for a union like the UAW to have all of these outside voices intervening in in the workers' decision. Um, that said, I mean, it seems like is there the possibility that there would be like like free speech, First Amendment related issues sort of intervening there as well? I mean, I can see why you wouldn't want. Local politicians and, and frankly, you know, the state governor. It sounds like basically everyone in the state government in these cases is chiming in saying, don't do this, right? Like that's got to be influential. And yet at the same time, you don't want to be telling people you're not allowed to talk about this politically important sort of decision that's getting made. Right. And that, and that, yeah, right. And there is a first amendment argument there because when the NLRB first came around in the 1930s, it would actually certify unions. Uh, without any, without allowing any uh, campaigning against it by the by the company, because they viewed the empl- the it, it, the employment relationship itself, where the employer controlled, where the employer was able to exercise through its property rights under state law, um, a lot of power over the employee that is not analogous at all to a normal political election, where two sides are kind of campaigning for your vote, but they don't necessarily, if, if, if one party uh, doesn't win, the other party then just doesn't get to still kind of control how many hours you work on the clock, how much you make. I mean, so, so the NLRB would actually um, invalidate any election where the employer voiced opposition to the union. And that ran into first amendment problems where the, to the point where the Supreme court eventually said that the employer has a right to voice uh, no, to to voice uh, opinions against the union that as long as they do not interfere with employees' Section Seven rights under the NLRA, uh, if as long as they don't interfere or coerce the employees from exercising those rights, um, so now the employer does have a right to campaign uh, against the union so long as they do not interfere in those rights. Um, However, there is no right for third parties. So there is no right for a employer necessarily or for a, uh, a, a local politician to say um, that you should or should not have a union in the workplace without the NLRB saying that that has tainted the results. Um, they are not seen as a party to the election, so they have no inherent interest in it. Um, so the laboratory conditions doctrine if applied in the way that I argue in the article uh, would say that if 
a sort of concerted effort by local by local political and business interests to try and interfere within the election itself and try to coerce employees against voting for the union, uh, that would be deemed to upset the laboratory conditions enough that a rerun of the election would become necessary. Right. I mean, it seems like a big part of your point is that this analogy to a regular political election is really strained to the point of not describing the circumstances that are really presented and that it needs to be thought of differently in order to accomplish the goals of an election, you know, of what the election is supposed to do in the first place. So what would that look like in practice? Like what would the NLRB have to do differently in order to pursue that kind of approach to thinking about union elections? Well, it, just in the way that I strictly speak in the article, I, I, I argue for a very small tweak, which is just to find that the sort of concerted efforts I was talking about from third parties would constitute um, a rerun of the election. And that's not necessarily new. Uh, the Since the 19, uh, late 1940s, when the laboratory conditions doctrine came into existence, the NLRB has policed um, third party uh, efforts in elections and rerun elections if they have, uh, if they have been deemed too coercive to the point where uh, one of the, fa- one of the, favorite examples I read was that um, within uh, a union was trying to organize a workplace within a community and a local owner of a bank was so against the union, he actually began denying loans to anybody who he he heard was supporting the union. So that's obviously, that's something extremely coercive outside of the normal company campaign that would be deemed worthy of overturning the result. What hasn't happened though, or at least not to this point, the NLRB has never held in the sort of setting that I've that I've spoken of or that I've brought up with Volkswagen and Nissan, where local political establishments have been have run a really coordinated uh, operation against the union. So sometimes, so they have held in the past that stray comments made by, say, a state representative, where they have sent a letter to the union saying, uh, I support your rights to unionize and under, under labor law. And, uh, I hope you support the union. They have said that that didn't taint the results because that was just kind of a small comment made that wouldn't overwhelm the employees, uh, freedom of choice to the point where rerunning the election would become necessary. Um, but they haven't before had sort of on their plate, the level of coordination that I, I've talked about where, um, you know, a, a United States senator has said, I have authority that, or I have on good authority that the union, if the, as long as the union loses the election, Volkswagen is going to expand its plant. But if they don't, then they're not going to expand the plant. And um, so the NLRB, by not policing that or letting that, ha- or just letting that go, really incentivizes that kind of campaign to be run in, in any election uh, going forward. Any election that the local community deems important enough mm. at a plant as large as Volkswagen, at a plant as large as Nissan. Um, say, imagine a future scenario where an Amazon plant that employs thousands of employees, if they're, if they're undergoing a, uh, a union effort, um, that then, honestly, if, if run by, uh, if the community is uh, has rep- majority Republican uh, representation, those politicians are uh, 
they have a strong incentive to argue against the union under the current NLRB process. And so it's not necessarily that the NLRB has said, no, this is not, this is, this does not violate laboratory conditions. I am just trying, I'm arguing that this should be a priority. This should be something that they view as something that they need to uh, step between or put place themselves between and say that this kind of election is uh, not viable going forward, that we need to uh, hold that these things are mm-hmm. laboratory conditions. But um, uh, what, and, right. but what you were speaking of earlier is that um, I, I'm not the first one to make the political analogy. That's been something around uh, for several decades within uh, labor law, re- labor law scholarship where people have pointed out that these, that this really isn't similar at all to a political election. Um, with, with, in, in a union election, it's totally legal for an employer to hold at what is called a captive audience meeting where they take as many workers that they want during working hours, place them within a room, say, you can't leave. You have to stay here and listen to this. And they will then give them an anti-union message, say, this is why we do not support the union. And as long as they don't go towards a really extreme step of saying, I will close down the plant if you don't vote for the union or something similar, um, then they don't violate any unfair labor practice by simply holding that captive audience meeting. But on the flip side, the union, by being an outside interest, by uh, not having any property rights over the employees, they cannot compel employees to listen to their message. And so that's just a huge imbalance inherent under labor law, where the employer through exercising his property rights is able to compel employees to listen to what he has to say. Meanwhile, the union gets placed in the position sort of of becoming this uh, it, this feeling of an imposture um, where they're having to organize in the shadows. They're having to knock on doors. They're having to call at night. They're having to... Uh, so it, it inherently creates this image of the union as something that shouldn't be there potentially, or, you know, or at least the default setting for an employee in that setting is the company has a point here. Why would I want them? Why would I want an outside third party coming in and trying to tell the employer how to run his business? Um, so really, mm-hmm. so I'm arguing for a very small tweak in labor law, but I think the problems run much deeper, but they have been touched on before. And, um, and even if, however, even if you want to try and uh, throw out the whole NLRB process right now or in the future, right now, these elections are being run at really major focuses of, uh, for union drives going forward. And to the point where just a few weeks ago at Volkswagen, they had an election that was lost by 30 votes this time around. And that is, and that's why you're speaking earlier about, about my uh, article being timely, is that the uh, Volkswagen tried to run that election again, or UAW tried to run that election again at Volkswagen and wasn't successful. And then these elections are still going to happen going forward. They're going to be as important as ever as, they, as unions try to protect against, trying to protect their wage gains made in more union-friendly states from simply disappearing south. Mm, mm. Well, thanks so much, Brandon. This has been really fascinating. And I've learned an awful lot about how unions work and the process of union organizing. Yeah, thanks for having me. And it's, uh, it's, it's great to talk to you in a uh, friend to friend setting instead of simply a professor student setting.
this is a, this is a first. Yeah. What about Power in the Union? You fancy that? Sure. Yeah, based on an old, uh, beautiful old American folk song, uh, Rally Around the Flag. And um, I stole the melody and rewrote the words. I heard it on a Ry Cooder record on the, uh, the soundtrack to The Long Riders, and I stole the, I stole the tune. And f- later found out, much to my joy, that actually the original song had been stolen from an English hymn. <laughs> so it, kinda, it was kind of cultural repetition. Comes full circle. Yeah. And it's one of the things that they play in the background at Disneyland when you go on the boat through oh. the American history. Oh, they play scary. the tune, just the tune. Because someone, someone came out and told me, Bill, they're playing Power in the Union in Disneyland. I'm like, no, <laughs> it's probably, probably rally around the flag. So Ooh. let's have some of that, shall we? All right. Power in the lands, power in the hand of the worker. But it all amounts to nothing if together we don't stand there. It's power in a union. Now the lessons of the past were all learned with workers' blood. The mistakes of the bosses we must pay for. From the cities and the farmlands to trenches full of mud War has always been the boss's way, sir The union forever defending our rights Down with the black leg, all workers unite With our brothers and our sisters, together we will stand There is power in a union Now I long for the morning that they realise brutality and unjust laws cannot defeat us. Who'll defend the workers who cannot organise when the bosses send their lackeys out to cheat us? Money speaks for money, the devil for his own. Who comes to speak for the skin and the bone? What a comfort to the widow, a light to the child. There is power in a union. The union forever defending our rights Down with the black leg, all workers unite With our brothers and our sisters, together we will stand There is power in a union 